Well, hi, I'm John. I'm so glad you're with us here at Access Church this morning. Every time we gather, we make a big deal of God's storybook. It's called the Bible. Some people call it God's manual for life, but that is to make the story a wee bit dull. It's far more than that. It's far more than that. It's not just God's manual for life. It's God's interaction with humanity. And it's an engaging story. It's an amazing story. And there's all sorts of stories in there, good, bad, and ugly. The warts and all, you can find them there. And that means I belong in this story. And you belong in this story because it's a story for all of us. This isn't just religious activity that we're reading about this morning. This is a, is a personal God who's cheering us on in life and, and wanting to engage with us in a vibrant, living, exciting way. If you're joining us for the first time, that is a crucial starting point. Please understand the God of the Bible is for you, not against you. We've been in this series over the last few weeks called Faith Over Fear. It's been a wonderful journey. For those listeners today who are in a particularly positive frame of mind and who are going, I don't have any fear. If I've got this far in COVID-19, then the future, it looks bright. I've got over the worst of it. Well, if that's you and you only see sunshine in your next season, number one, you're not a Victorian. (laughs) Poor old Victorians. Sorry. Number two... If you don't have a worry in the world, then bank this strength from this series. Because here's what's going to happen. Another trial is coming soon. That's just the way of life. Jesus warned us of that. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. So you get the benefit today and through this series, Faith Over Fear, listening through a different filter. Not necessarily because you feel like you need it today, but you're going to need it one day soon. So you get to bank this strength because the trials of life aren't an if, they're a when. They're a when. In our Bibles, it doesn't say if the trials come, it's always when they come. The trials will continue to come. So now is a golden opportunity to get your emotional hygiene sorted out, ready for your next mountain to climb. Because Craig Groeschel is right, the quality of your life will never exceed the quality of of your thoughts. The quality of your life will never exceed the quality of your thoughts. So rather than carry stress around, which this year thus far has provided us ample material, yeah, it has. But rather than carry that stress around, this series is a great opportunity to identify those fears and deal with them in the loving presence of a God who's overcome all. Today I want to talk about how fear can drive us from God. How fear can drive us from God. Last week we talked about healthy fear, a fear that can move us towards God when we come to him in reverent fear, in appropriate fear, in a fear that he, he, he desires and needs. Today I want to talk about the opposite of that, when fear becomes unhealthy. There's most certainly a healthy fear. We talked last week about Jesus' words where he says, fear God who not only can kill the body but throw the soul into hell. And last week we said that's the kind of verse you need, a nappy change after reading. It's scary stuff. Fear God who can throw your soul into hell for all eternity. That was last week. That's a fear that's designed us to move towards God. I love what Bede said that we commented on last week. There is a fear that comes only to depart when its work is done. That's the healthy fear of God. Today I want to talk about unhealthy fear. 
And it's generated from a completely different source. This isn't a loving father who wants to draw us into a relationship. This is the enemy of souls who comes. He's the father of lies. He's the devil, Satan, who comes to drive us away from God. And there's a fear that he's wanting to generate that can do that. We're going to go into Luke 15 this morning, a rather famous Bible passage. But I need to say something before we get there. Often this passage, although it's well known, is called something other than what it is. It's incorrectly termed. It's often called the prodigal son, but it's not that at all. When we call it the prodigal son, we highlight the lifestyle of the son and make a hero of the story that. The fact that he's this wild guy who gets away with it. But that's not the context at all. Luke 15 tells us that this is a story not about a son, but about a father. A father who's on a mission to find lost things that matter to him and bring them back home. And when they get home, a party erupts. And so there's three stories here, not one. But if you miss verse 1 and 2, you'll miss that. Verse 1 and 2 of Luke 15 says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law, notice this word, muttered. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Hospitality in Jewish culture is one of the highest of all values. That Jesus would make time for people by stopping and eating with them was horrendous to religious people. You probably could go without saying, but I'll say it to make it super clear. These two verses interpret the rest of the chapter for us. If we miss them, we miss everything. These are three colourful stories about a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. They all say the same thing. They're all a reflection of verse 1 and 2 of Luke 15. It's Jesus answering his critics. Illustrations that justify that he gave time to nobodies, to outcasts, to sinners. He's answering this muttering claim of religious guys who can't get it. It's a a left-right-left combination. Punches thrown by Jesus to, in response, an angry response, I would suggest, to them totally missing the heart of God. And this is Jesus, three stories to answer that. And he's provocative all the way through. In, right to the end of the, the chapter in verse 28 where he says, the older son in this story who thinks he's done nothing wrong is the son, don't miss this, he's the son that ends up outside the house. This is very, very provocative by Jesus because he's saying these people who I'm sitting with here who you think have no chance of ever getting into God's family, here's what you need to know. They're much more likely than you'll ever be. This is fierce words from Jesus in Luke 15. Contextual rant over. Let's read from verse 11 of Luke 15. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father... Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now you need to know about these first couple of verses. Everything about this picture is wrong. From a Jewish perspective, it is so out of order. The conversation of inheritance was to be initiated by the father, not the son. And if any son would initiate it, it would be always the oldest child, not the youngest child. Not long after that, verse 13. The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine 
in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Verse 17, he came to his senses. A turning point in the story. He came to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll sit out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Notice he doesn't even say, make me a servant. He says, make me like him. He's like, I'll accept a, a place on the bench on the servant list. Verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found so they began to celebrate. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. This morning I want to talk to you about how fear can lead us away from the Father. How fear can lead us away from the Father. If you're struggling to comprehend this from this particular story, I direct you backwards. Backwards to the first book of the Bible in Genesis. It's how the enemy got in the head of the first man and woman. He said, you can't really trust God. He won't provide you with enough because the enemy knows the opposite of fear is trust. So he'll do his utmost to erode that foundation and our confidence in the presence of God. And he tells us the good life is out there somewhere. You have to leave God to find it. You won't find it if you stick around here. This was the lie that got into the psyche of Adam and Eve in the very first place. A fear that God was holding out on them. And the enemy comes along and makes what is, is evil look desirable. And we need it. He, he leaves us with this lingering fear that we are missing out on all the fun by staying with God. I recently heard a super helpful interview with a guy called Dr. Michael Roncisvel. And he said this, when we see irritation and anger, we need to hear fear. I'll read that again. When we see irritation and anger, we need to hear fear. Don't miss his point. We need to look deeper than what meets the eye in order to understand people's decision-making systems or even their outbursts. Often there's a deeper root and the deeper root is fear. So am I giving a pass to all poor behaviour because we can just blame it on fear? You know, yeah, I got violent, punched a hole in the wall. Sorry, I didn't mean it. I was just scared. Uh, no, no, we're not saying that. What we are saying is ultimately fear is the mother of a lot of damaging behaviours and we do well to understand that. I wonder sometimes what we term rebellion, at least sometimes, sometimes 
is fear-driven. Because if I stay here and am faithful to God, the good life will pass me by. Because fun and faithfulness aren't simultaneous. They're enemies. You have to leave faithfulness in order to embrace fun. Isn't that right? Isn't that what the world says? I think that's what we see unfolding in Luke 15 verse 12 where the younger son looks at his life, scans across the recess of his life and says, my existence doesn't add up to much. Why am I staying here with the father for? I mean, it's monotonous, day in, day out. I'm only young once. I'm only young once, right? I hear the call of the world. I'm heading out. I'm heading out to have some fun. I need to go to dad and demand my inheritance while I'm young enough to enjoy it. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. So in verse 13, he heads off to party. What's this got to do with fear? What's the lie underneath it, isn't it? That fun and faithfulness don't co-mingle. They're enemies. And if I stay here following Dad around for the next 40 years, that's boring. This lie comes to us in many different ways. It has fear at the heart of it. For the 18-year-old who's just got their licence and can get around independently, it's that I don't have to live under the restraint of mum and dad any longer. In fact, I'm tired of them even questioning where I've been and who I've been hanging out with. If I move in with my girlfriend, all of those problems are solved. I don't want to stay here in this limited, disciplined, narrow way of living. I need to get out there and enjoy life. It's packaged differently for the 28-year-old on the verge of a breakthrough who's moving into a promising career. Same lie, different package. There's a better career waiting. If only you make a few integrity sacrifices, nothing overly serious. Just a few little white lies here and there, a few little, little tweaks, and you'll, your career will be off and running. Can't you leave your religion behind on a Monday and pick it up again the following weekend when you're at church? I mean, can't you separate business and religion? If you want to get ahead, you have to get into this flirting with the boss because everybody else is doing it. You'll have to tell a few white lies on the product because all your, all your workmates are doing that. If you don't, you'll be left behind. Just a few integrity sacrifices, that's all. It's fear-driven. It's a failure to trust. For the 58-year-old man, man, it's something different altogether. He wants to know if he's still got it. He wants to know if he's still got it. And the next-door neighbour who's 15 years younger thinks he's still got it. The way she looks at him, I mean, it it makes his liver quiver. And he he wants to prove that he's still got it. And what his spouse doesn't know won't hurt, will it? If he lets this opportunity go by, even with a few moral prickles attached, if he lets this opportunity go by, he'll later regret it, won't he? You fill in the blank. It's this lie that the enemy comes to plan in our minds. If I get that, then I'll feel a new level of satisfaction and contentment. And if I don't, I I I won't ever be 
worthy of admiration and be living the good life. It's fear-based living. It's tuning into the seductive voice that says, go out and prove yourself in order to be worth something. You're incomplete without it. Culturally, we now call this FOMO disease. Fear of missing out. FOMO. It shows up in all sorts of ways, but essentially it's that the grass is greener on the other side. And if only I had their life, I would be better off. Because my miserable life, if you can even call it a life, is nowhere near as good. Nowadays, social media exaggerates these discrepancies. They're magnified. If you're under 20, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But we didn't used to know when our friends were off in doing a European summer. We had no idea. But now, through the help of social media, we get to compare. 2020 lockdown's a bad time for this analogy, I know. But we're familiar enough with this story to imagine it. Callie is off touring the world with a hot new boyfriend. And you're at home doing what? Changing babies' nappies and putting on another load of washing? Like, hardly comparable. She's living the good life and you're not. She's having the fun and you're doing the faithful. Fear of missing out. This comparison game leads us to one point. Depression. And studies are clearly showing that this is the impact of social media now when we embrace this comparison game. It's always detrimental to our emotional health. And the further I get away from the place where the father dwells, like the younger son in this story, the less able I'm to hear the voice that calls me beloved. We need to not look at this younger son this morning and say, how could you? How could you run away from the father who provided you everything? You've made a ruin of your life. All of us are just two or three decisions away from that ruin. Two or three bad decisions and we're all in this same place he arrives at, which is rock bottom. Certainly from a Jewish perspective, there's nothing lower than finding yourself in a pig pen. Culturally, pigs are unclean animals to, the, to them. They're ceremonially unclean. They can't imagine being in a pig sky. You say, John, I don't need to be a Jew to appreciate that. I mean, I've seen a pig before. Yeah, I grew up on a hobby farm around pigs. They stink. They're awful animals. You always smelt them before you ever saw them. The point becomes clear. A young man in a pig's eye hoping to share their food has slipped to the bottom rung. And the people Jesus is talking to here in the first century couldn't think of anything worse than caring for swine. I wonder if you've been there. I wonder if you're there today. You look at your life and it's like pig slops. The enemy of soul doesn't leave us alone at that point. He's just getting started. He has more fear to bring to us at this point in time. Not a fear that that drives us away from the Father in the first place, but now a fear that keeps us away from the Father. With even more lies, he circles back in our story and says, who could love you now? With the choices you've made. Nobody. Certainly not God. 
you're too far gone. And he brings this lies now that keeps us from the Father. A lie that keeps us from the Father. Fear of missing out was what drew us away from the Father. But then there's this fear that I've mucked up so spectacularly, I must stay away from the Father. I must stay away from the Father because he couldn't possibly forgive me now. As the music team come forward today, we have two fears that we've spoken of today which are both against the purposes of God. The fear of missing out which has us feeling like the good life is out there and we'd have to leave God to find it. That's a fear that keeps us from God. But then there's this fear that the enemy tries to bring in to make the father feel unapproachable and we can't possibly come home. So what do we do with that? Well, like the younger son in this story, we do what he ends up doing in verse 21. We come undone. We come undone. We anticipate for ourselves a lowly place. We come and we say, Father, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to be your son or your daughter. And when we come like that, we get this pleasant surprise. We talked about it last week when we finished with that picture on screen of the president clapping his children along as they were dancing in the Oval Office. It's the same deal. There's always just one step home. No matter how far we wander from the Father, he's an amazing forgiver. And with this thing called humility, as we take that step back home, we find that there's this object in a distance and as it comes closer, we realise it's the Father running towards us and he rushes to embrace us and we feel resistant to that it's like father not before I've had a shower I mean you don't know where I've been you don't know how far I've messed up but wait father I need to clean myself up I haven't had a chance to take a shower yet but wait father I'm afraid I'll stink. Stay stay a distance. And he just comes in and embraces us like we've never left with the tightest, warmest, most beautiful hug ever. Can I make an observation as we work towards the close this morning? Maybe there's way too many of us spending energy on yesterday We're missing the Father's posture toward us today. Which is that? Would you just come home? Would you just come home? I'm far more interested in your future potential than I am your past mistakes. Would you just come home? Would you just come home? His body language to a returning son or daughter is never this. How dare you come back here after what you've done? His body language is always this. This. My father collected cars 
and uh, he had a fair collection. I think it got up to 40 at one stage. And he loved his cars, and he particularly loved Fiat's. He had Fiat after Fiat after Fiat. But he had one particular favourite that he just loved. And uh, I was home alone this particular day, 16 years old. Uh, got my L plates a week before, so you can join the dots. I was an expert driver with cars galore to choose from. Now, you're thinking the worst, but let me explain. Let me explain. I needed to get to football training, and we lived, uh, say, a 10-minute drive from town on a little hobby farm. And I needed to get to football training. And no, I didn't drive one of his cars. But I had a flat tyre on my bike. And the only thing that I could do, that I could imagine doing to fix it, was drive in the back roads of course, I didn't ask permission. He was away on holidays. And when I'm 16, there's not mobile phones to text him and say, hey, Dad, can I drive the car? He probably would have said no anyway. So I got in. Home alone. Nobody to say no. I jumped in the car and I was intending to go around the back roads to the nearest neighbour who he knew quite well. And I would get a puncture kit for my bike. And then... I would come back home, fix the puncture on my bike, and then be able to ride to football training that night, right? Cool. All was well? Well, not really. 16-year-old, recently got my old plates, thought I was ruling the world. Get behind the wheel, get on those dirt roads back behind our home, and I put the foot down a little just to see what it'll be like completely lost control of the car, Dad's favourite car. I said he had a lot, but this particular one was the special one. I rode it off, wrapped it around a tree, completely rode it off, tree through the motor, lost control. I was largely unharmed, had a few minor injuries, but the only thing was, that was of concern was my worry meter because I had a, a full week to wait before Dad was arriving back home from holidays. And I had to stew on it over and over and over again. What was his response going to be? His favourite car is ruined. I mean, it's, it's towed back into the front driveway, but you can see it's never going to be on the road again. A week later... Dad arrives home from holidays. I met him on the veranda. I was keen to get it over and done with. If he was going to knock my, knock my block off, I might as well get it done early. So I'm out there on the veranda and I can see the car just across the way. And uh, I said, did you hear what happened to your car? And he said, he looked, he said, you, you've crashed it. I said, yeah. He didn't say anything. I waited for his reaction, whether it was going to be anger or disappointment or fury even. It was his favourite car. He didn't say anything. Not a word. That was amazing to me. What was more amazing 
was Dad got a new car. A modern car. Dad never had modern cars. But a short time later, he got this new car. New car. And first time I was ever going to ride in the car with him, still with zero confidence after my recent accident, I was about to hop in, and of course I was going to the passenger seat. He said, you're driving. And I said, I can't drive. I've, I've already ruined one of your cars. I'm not going to ruin this new one. And he said, did you mean that, did you? He got aggressive. He said, did you mean it? I said, no, I didn't. It was an accident. And he said, well, get in and drive. Try again. From that day on, I would drive differently. I would never abuse one of my father's cars ever again, or any car for that matter, because that act of grace just blew me away. It was a love that drove out fear. I loved my dad differently from that day onwards because I got to see his heart. I got to see what he was really like and I was just amazed. How can, he, how can he give me another opportunity after what I've done? Because he was a good father. That's why. And that's what fathers do. They pity their children. That's what the Bible says. As a good father pities their children, so the Lord pities his children. He, he sees their level of maturity and he calls them up to a higher level. He, he doesn't, doesn't highlight our past mistakes and, and pour out shame upon us. He comes again and says, why don't you hand that over? Why don't you try again? Why don't we start over? That's what we see in this father here in this story in Luke 15. This is really a story about the love of the father. Please don't miss it today and more than anything else. Please wind up inside the house. Don't be that older brother who is self-sufficient and I've never done anything wrong. Be that younger brother. That comes back home. It's there we find the embrace of the father. God bless you.